This is the Dungeon Master's Handbook. Hello everyone, this is Michael, also known as Chicago Wiz. Thanks for listening. This episode, we're going to talk about a couple of different things. We're going to talk about Dungeon 23, and we're going to talk about XP and leveling, and how I do it a little bit different than the rules is written. Hope you uh, stay and listen. So Dungeon 23, I am well into my fifth week of working on the dungeon, which may seem odd since we're only in our third week of uh, 2023, but I had started early in order to be able to start people actually playing in my Dungeon 23 Mega Dungeon, which I'm calling the Black Maw. Um, it's going really well. Uh, the Having people in the dungeon has proven to be a good amount of motivation for me. Um, I have six players, uh, five of whom had shown up for the first uh, first session, and we'll see if uh, we'll see if I have a consistent group or what happens there. But uh, it was a fun session. Um, I kind of threw them into the middle of things. Um, used an old trope of your prisoners on a prison ship, and you're being kicked off the ship on this island out in the middle of nowhere and your sentence is to survive for a certain amount of time before you're able to be freed. Uh, They had all their gear and the only path off the rocky beach led to the Black Maw. I know, a little railroady. They actually could have explored the hills and continued on if they wanted to, to be able to a fine town, but they opted to go into the dungeon first, which is cool. I have a uh, after-play report all written up on my blog, if you're interested, as well as on my blog, I keep track of my weekly uh, build logs, uh, where I talk about each day about something that I've run into, or... You know, maybe voice a little frustration, how the dice are driving me crazy, blah, blah, yada, yada. But it's it's fun stuff. I'm having fun. It's part of my daily uh, Dungeon 23 ritual where I go do a little bit of random generation, a little bit of writing, a little bit of blogging, and then move on with the day. Um, I hope if you're participating that you're finding it as enjoyable as well. I know uh, watching the Dungeon 23 hashtag on Mastodon and the Dungeon 23 subreddit uh, 16 days in and there is still a lot of creativity going on which is really wonderful to see and I'm I'm glad that people are... uh, I'm glad that people are having a good time with it. A lot of creativity out there. A lot of um, ideas being floated about. Uh, A lot of cool stuff. A lot of similarities, too. It's interesting to see that. And maybe we can talk about that in a future episode. But I have something else to talk about. So that's my Dungeon 23 update. Let's talk about XP and leveling. Especially in context of original Dungeons & Dragons OD&D. 
and Advanced Dungeons and Dragons as written in the late 70s. Um, certainly, the basics and uh, second edition followed along with what I'm going to talk about, but I'm primarily focused on these two editions because, well, they're what I play. Um, so, you know, I started off like everyone else reading the books and quickly understanding that, hey, XP is all about the loot and the killing of creatures. And on the surface of it, there's not a lot of disagreement on that. I mean, certainly the, the books promote this idea. And, you know, I, I've ran with that pretty much all of my life. You know, I, I've had minor variations to that. Um, if, if the players had done something, you know, that, that, that felt like that they should have gotten some wealth out of it, um, you know, I might be generous with, with that. Um, back in the late aughts, early teens, there was an idea about exploration with XP capitalized in the word exploration. Uh, the idea was that if the players went to some new place for the first time, you would get XP for it to, to help encourage, you know, exploring and, and finding new places, which for a campaign based on exploration, like a, um, you may have heard the phrase West Marches, I'll let you Google that if you've never heard of that before. There's been a ton written about West March's style of campaigns uh, popularized in the OSR. Uh, those kinds of exploration games would benefit from, you know, an XP reward. You know, XP being the idea of rewarding someone, you know, the more XP you get, the higher level you are, you know, the more skilled, more trained, yada yada. And, and by and large, I stuck with that idea till about 2015. And I attended uh, GaryCon up in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin in 2015. And I had the chance to play in an Empire of Petal Thrones, also known as Tecumel. And this is, um, for those of you that uh, have only briefly heard about it, uh, Empire of the Petal Thrones, Tecumel is a uh, the first kind of game-setting hybrid that came out after D&D was released. So D&D was released in 1974, but Gary and David had been playing D&D for a couple of years, maybe a little longer before then. Some variation thereof. It started with David Arneson, Gary saw it, and, you know, the rest is history. Um... A gentleman that they had shown this to by the name of Professor M.A.R. Barker liked this game so much that he adapted it to a world that he had been playing with and created the Empire of the Petal Thrones game as well as the setting. Uh, he basically customized D&D to fit the world that he had built. Um, you know, Today, that doesn't seem too strange, but in 1974, that was a pretty big deal. He also self-published his game and setting, uh, limited number of copies to his friends and whatnot. And then in 1975, TSR reached out to him, and he produced 
what, as far as I can tell, is the first box set of a D&D-like variant that was published. Um, Arduin came out a little bit later. Tunnels and Trolls, which is a uh, competitor, or was a competitor to Dungeons and Dragons, uh, came out in 75, but seems to have come out after Empire of the Petal Thrones. Anyway, the reason, and, and, I, and I'm going to make a quick side note here, um, because for those of you that are either aware or are going to go off and search about Empire of the Petal Throne, you're going to run into some very unpleasant, horrifying uh, facts about Professor M.A.R. Barker. Uh, he was a Nazi sympathizer and an anti-Semitist. Um, and um, that's really messed up and unfortunate. Um, it's unfortunate because so many people really enjoyed Empire of the Petal Throne, Tecumel, and then in, I think it was 2020, 2021, this news came out, confirmed that he had uh, participated in quite recent uh, Nazi-sympathizing activities. I bring this up because, again, you're going to find out about it, and it's yet another case of where something that had the potential to be so wonderful now has this shadow over it of something pretty horrific. Um, I personally don't play EPT anymore, and uh, that's my choice. Everybody's got to make their own choices. What I choose to do, though, is take the good things that I learned from the setting and the game and make them part of my own. Uh, which, I, you know, for me, that's all I can do. Everybody's got their own deal. Everybody's got their own uh, path that they have to follow. And, you know, you do you. All right. So let's talk about what I learned about leveling and XP. So 2015, Jeff Berry, also known as Kyrene Bacall, who was a player in the original um, uh, Empire of Petal Thrones campaign, was hosting his game. Uh, me and a, another old school guy had a ton of fun ripping through his scenario, completing it in about uh, a third of the time that he expected. But, you know, we, we had fun. Um, Jeff's announced that I was, you know, I, I was a first level character. I was now third level in, I think it was um, the Cult of the Red God, uh, something like that. And I was astonished. And I'm like, I we didn't find that much gold, and we didn't earn that much reward money, uh, and we didn't kill that many guards, because we basically used every tool at our advantage to sneak in and sneak out without really, you know, letting anyone know what we were doing. Jeff goes, exactly. And because of that, the cult is so impressed at your ability of humiliating the kidnapper's cult, rescuing this person who was a high-placed um, cult of the red god uh, priest or priestess, something like that. Anyway, this cult is so impressed that you are now on the fast track for being one of the new up-and-comers 
and you're now third level with all of the rights, privileges, and powers that come with that. And I was astonished at this, and I said, Jeff, you know, is this normal in Empire? And he proceeds to tell me about how this was very common in uh, the original campaign, where it, and in fact had its basis in Dave Arneson's game, where if you perform some great service for the faction you were in, or you did something that, you know, really helped out the region that you were in, you would find yourselves bumped up levels. And we didn't talk too much about it, but I chewed on that for a little while. And I went back and I read, reread the OD&D books, AD&D, and it suddenly occurred to me that we've had this sitting in front of us the entire time, but it was subtle. And I think the reason it was subtle is manyfold, and I'll get to that in a second. So what was in front of us? Well, if you go and look at OD&D and AD&D, at the class descriptions, every level has a name, a title. That implies advancement. That implies status. That implies power, because as you, you know, move up the ladder, so to speak, you do gain certain types of power. And on top of that, you also have the fact that OD&D and AD&D promote an endgame, where the idea is, as you amass this wealth and power and abilities and hopefully friends and comrades, your ability to control and lead and influence an area around you grows until you can build your own castle, stronghold, uh, tower, temple, hideout, what, what have you, depending on your class. And from this edifice, you can then project that power not only in the area around you, also known as a hex, but you can start projecting that same influence and control into the neighboring hexes, thereby, again, growing your influence, you know? And that was really kind of eye-opening to me that, okay, so we have here the idea of the end game, but the idea of chaining the two together that as your XP grows and as your level grows, that you would start to basically become a VIP. And then one other final bit of this kind of plugged in for me. I like the idea, and, and I chewed on it for a while because, you know, right away that seemed to translate to 
players who uh, were involved in things like religions, you know, clerics, um, you know, what have you, or if you were part of a mercenary group, the idea of, hey, you completed a mission, you did XYZ that really helped us out, we're going to make you, you know, a first lieutenant or a captain, uh, that kind of makes sense. But I wasn't really sure what to do if the players were just, you know, Joe or Jane, you know, fighter, every person, uh, you know, or, or someone that wasn't affiliated with a, uh, a faction. The final piece of it fell in for me when I was considering the names of the three types of... Uh, persons that you could be in a chainmail game. So in chainmail, if you're doing um, uh, the, the, the fantasy combat, there's the concept of you being a normal person. Then there's the concept of you being a quote-unquote hero. And then there's the concept of you being a superhero or super wizard. And those equate to power levels in chainmail, you know, how many attacks you can dish out and how many attacks you can take. But if you look at the way chainmail was used, it was also an indication of kind of of your status within the group of forces that you're a part of. Um, if we look at the, um, the module T1 Village Hamlet, which I'm very familiar with because I've written a, uh, a, a game based off of that. The order of battle, the forces have heroes and superhero um, level um, characters in them. And these are the leaders and the lieutenants and captains and whatnot. And I was putting it together and suddenly it kind of all clicked that there's a way that I can quantify the effect that a player can have and give the players an idea, if you do X, Y, and Z, this can result in you gaining levels. And it's interesting because, um, and, and the reason I'm bringing this up is uh, I'm having a discussion with someone on the OD&D uh, Pro Boards forum about this very topic, and they made the case that, well, you know, the way David Arneson, and by extension, uh, Professor Barker, they would, you know, randomly hand out these levels, and players don't like things that don't have clarity. You know, they like to have a complete path forward. Well, it, it, that's a fair point if a DM just randomly says out of the blue, oh, hey, now you're kind of level, you know, you're now level three. Well, I wasn't expecting that. But if I've already let the players know during this campaign, if XYZ happened, there's the possibility of you gaining a level um, or, you know, maybe even telegraph that a little bit. Uh, when they're being, you know, put on the mission. So, I now have a way to quantify that. And so, I'm going to kind of walk you through 
how I do it in my games, as an example here, because I see where this uh, episode is running long. So level zero and level one, you're kind of at the who are you stage, you know, you walk into town, you walk into the tavern, I'm a swashbuckling, swaggering adventure. Uh, yeah, okay, buddy. Sit down, have a drink, don't hurt yourself with the sword that you're carrying at your side. You know, that kind of level. When you get to level two and three, though, that's when, you know, you start to get known around town. And I'm using town generically to kind of indicate what home base or what area the PCs have set themselves up in. Because at least in my campaign, the PCs usually anchor themselves to a starting place and they'll work out of that place for a little while. Well, you know, as as you're doing things around that place, um, there's the chance for you to grow your reputation, either in a good way or or a bad way, you know, because, hey, (laughs) you might want to be, you know, the the bad girl or the bad boy, you know, upsetting people, making them wonder about you, that kind of thing. But your reputation will grow so that by the time you hit fourth level, you've also hit hero level because in Chainmail OD&D, fourth level was equated with the hero level, which was one of the groupings from Chainmail. So a hero is exactly what it sounds like, but they're a hero of that locality. You know, by fourth level, you have probably done enough to be famous or infamous, and hero may be, you know... (laughs) tongue-in-cheek irony as much as it is an actual real title, but, you know, you've gotten a reputation. You're well-known around the town. You can project a bit of power in that town. You know, I'm the hero of Vale Town. Therefore, the mayor does listen to me when I say X, Y, Z. You know, I can walk into the tavern and probably get a free drink, and the bartender's going to tell me the rumors rather than me having to pay for them, And, and, you know, things like that. And, you know, if if the players haven't done a single thing in terms of, you know, joining a faction or building themselves up or what have you, that's okay because the, um, the effect of them is still felt. You know, when my players go into town now at fourth level, there's a bit of deference given to them. You know, there's, um, you know, they have earned that rank and and there's, there's some reward coming of it. The next kind of step is that now they're getting to be known regionally. And so, um, you know, the area around town, think of it, you know, if you're in town, well, now you're getting known in maybe the counties around town, maybe, you know, to use an American phrase, the state, if you will. You start, you know, you know, if you're second level, you know, and, and you leave town and you go to somewhere else and you're like, ah, you know, I'm fighter so-and-so, they're going to be like, okay, and... Well, now, you know, after hitting fourth level, you're going to start to have a reputation that's starting to spread. 
Um, that then takes us into fifth, sixth, and seventh levels. And we're kind of repeating now at a regional level what happened at the local level. So at a regional level, uh, level levels five, six, and seven, you're starting to get known. Your reputation is spreading beyond the town, beyond the locale, and is going out into, you know, various other places. Now it's not who are you. It's like, oh yeah, you're so-and-so from Vale Town. Yep, I've heard of you and the way you ran out the goblins and the way you cleared out the dragons and so on and so forth. And again, the players are starting to feel that benefit of reputation. Um, in town, they are starting to work their way towards nobility, towards leadership. And this is going to play into the whole idea of a stronghold in a second. Now, what about outside of the region? What about across the rest of the map? Well, you know, your campaign is your campaign, but in my campaign for levels five, six, and seven, they are at a, across the entire map level, they'll move from a, who are you, to a, oh yeah, I've kind of heard of you. So that when they finally hit eighth level, superhero level, um, you know, this is the point in the campaign where, yes, probably everyone has heard of you. Maybe only a little bit, maybe to a decent amount, or maybe to where you're actually living right next to this superhero. Um, and this is the, the point at uh, 8, 9, and 10 and beyond where the strongholds and the holding of you know, the leadership of the locale of the region really starts to come into form. Um, in OD&D, uh, eighth level was where a priest could start to build a temple. Uh, you became a matriarch or a patriarch and uh, you could build your temple and attract followers and so on. Level nine is where uh, fighters could construct their castles, um, where uh, magic users would become sorcerers, they could start to construct their towers, their libraries, and whatnot, and again, start to project power from that, uh, that stronghold. So in my campaign, level nine is where you begin to be a leader, you know, be someone that can make things get done with, you know, a command versus a negotiation, um, what have you. Um, so how does factions and missions and XP work into all this? So if I've got these nice groupings around the levels and their effect and what they do and how they project, what about XP? Well, I still award XP for monsters and treasure. But I also make it clear that levels can be gained for um, based on their faction or their area of influence. And what do I mean by that? So levels one and above, you can definitely affect your locale, the town that you're living in. Um, you know, if, if I started off in Vale Town, you know, and I did a service for Vale Town. You know, I, I saved the the school children from the marauding goblin horde that kidnapped them, and I wiped out those goblins. Well, 
that has the possibility of raising my level depending on the play depending on what we uh what we as the the group uh you know have done and my my decision and ruling as as the dungeon master um you know if you're level five six and seven and you do something for the region around you you know a a horde of horrible magical invaders have have entered and are terrorizing the countryside you know for miles and miles around and i go and i wipe that out um you know that might see me increase the level because now my influence and my reputation have grown such a big amount because of that action um a little bit easier to figure out for factions, you know, go out and do a mission for my church and my church is seen in a positive light and, you know, everybody's singing the praises of my God. Well, as a paladin or a cleric, it's very likely I may have bumped up a level because I'm being rewarded by my deity for those services and so on. And so I think these things for factions can tie together very nicely. Um... I think that's about all I have on that, you know. Um, Definitely, I try to make it clear in the beginning of, you know, say a set of adventures or if, if the characters, the players have decided to go off and do something that, you know, their characters could benefit in such and such a way, you know, when the church, uh, uh, priest or priestess is giving the mission. You know, if you do this, you will become a curate. Blah, blah, blah. That kind of thing. You know, um, uh, more subtle ways. You know, uh, you rescued the children and they hold a parade in your honor and the mayor gives you a key to the town and so on. And, um, you know, the, the, there's level three. That kind of thing. Um, I, I guess, you know, I've used this in my campaign, and it's worked very well, and I've um, been able to reward the players and see them grow, and their characters grow as they've, you know, fit in with this way that I look at XP and leveling. Um, I also think that doing something like this gives my players more incentive than just, you know, monsters and treasure. Um, it allows them to think about what effects am I having on the people that I'm interacting with beyond just a role playing, but there's a tangible benefit that they can see and helps their characters to grow. Okay, I think I've rambled on enough. A uh, little bit longer of an episode than normal, but I hope this was informative. And, uh, you know, if you have any questions or comments, um, let me know what you think. Until next time, stay safe and game on. <laughs>